welcome back everyone. I'm your host Max Shannon, co-founder and president of X University Business Week. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a fellow extra alumni, Stefan Surplus. Stefan started his career at Dresdner at Kleinwerk Benson, then became an associate at Goldman Sachs for three years. After his tenure at Goldman Sachs, Stefan moved to Cantor Fitzgerald as a senior research analyst in London, then joined a family office where he worked for nine years between Switzerland and Luxembourg. In 2018, Stefan became a senior portfolio manager at Bank International at Luxembourg for around eight months, then moved to Edmund de Rothschild as a senior portfolio manager. Earlier this year, Stefan was asked to become CAO in a local hub in the Luxembourg Bank and also speaks fluent English, Italian, French, intermediate Spanish and basic level German. Thanks so much for joining me today, Stefan. Can you start off by saying what Edmund de Rothschild is and what your role is? First of all, thank you for having me on the Exeter Business Week uh, podcast. It's a real pleasure to speak to you, Max, and, and to your listeners. So thank you. Um, Edmund de Rothschild is uh, an offshoot of the, of the relatively famous Rothschild family, banking family institutions that was set up in the late 18th century. The famous Five Arrows, um, the original founder was, was based in Frankfurt, and he sent uh, four of his sons to European capitals, which included Naples, Vienna, London, and Paris. One stayed in Frankfurt. And this was the famous Five Arrows. Um, as history went through, some businesses thrived, some were shut down, and, and the two famous remaining businesses, the most famous ones, were, were the London and Paris branches, which have now merged. We're an off- Edmund de Rothschild was set up by an offshoot of the, uh, one of the gentlemen in the French family who bought a, a Swiss-based private bank in the, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and created Edmund de Rothschild um, we are a, a specialist private bank and uh, fund management company, roughly split half-half. So we uh, provide investment services and solutions to private clients, generally wealthy clients, as well as to institutions. Uh, a lot of our business is in the public markets, but we also have a growing uh, private offering, as you can imagine. So we do PE, we do impact investing, we do um, we, d- we launch various funds that that. Uh, a lot of the families and people who come to us do do like to co-invest along with the family. And importantly, our, our founding family is is also heavily invested in those projects, which provides that comfort. So that's Edmund de Rothschild. We are we are quite present. Our, our main hub is Geneva, but we are quite present in Paris and Luxembourg. Small presence in London, unfortunately, hopefully growing. A uh, bit of a European player. It's a bit of the story of the of the Rothschild family. They. They missed a beat in the 19th century to get involved in uh, in the U.S. market. So they're mainly a European player, but obviously with a strong brand name across the world. Awesome. Um, so Edmunds Rothschild is a conviction-driven investment house. Can you tell our listeners what this actually means and what this entails? Yeah, so following on from, from hopefully what I just mentioned, it's it's basically a continuation or trying to continue the Rothschild theme of, uh, of the last couple hundred years. So obviously the Rothschild finance railroads, hospitals, many important institutions throughout the world, um, in Europe, as well as, as South America, Israel, etc. So so clearly it's a family that, that it builds for the long term. Um, our clients come to us because they, they know the brand and they also want a a family institution that is is not here today, gone tomorrow, but is really here. And um, it will make choices based on hopefully the next 10 or 15 years. Now, clearly I'm more involved in the public market. So uh, we, we, we try to choose the leaders of tomorrow and in various fields, we try to avoid industries, fields, sectors that are, that are probably in terminal decline. 
Um, but but alongside that, as I mentioned, we have private investments in in areas like um, renewables, regreening, uh, in farming in Africa, uh, lots of different areas that um, I guess traditionally would have been are now being called socially responsible investing, so impact investing. So we do provide that uh, that wide range of of investments. I think to people who who again want to invest over twenty or thirty years. So that's I guess how we would summarize what conviction investing is. Perfect. So let's move on to macroeconomics for starters. Um, what are your thoughts on transitory or permanent inflation or maybe disinflation or even deflation? Um, and yeah. what specific time horizons? Yeah, so clearly um, it's, it's, it's a great kickoff question because it's clearly the question of 2021 and 22, but it has been the question since 2008. Um, I mean, inflation is a very tricky beast. Um, you, you dread not having it. And as soon as it comes back, you, you panic about it coming back. So that's, it's, it's a bit of a funny world we find ourselves in. I think um, transitory, I mean, we found in history that I think inflation really doesn't really get ingrained in economies, which is what ultimately central bankers worry about until you start seeing wage price and wage inflation that that's really where it's it's kind of expected every year and it can get out of hand most banks most central banks in the last 20 30 years in my career i've been in working in finance for nearly 25 years have been very keen to look through commodity shocks supply shocks so we're still in that phase where this can be dismissed as a temporary phenomenon um and and a base effect etc bottleneck supplies. I mean, a lot of the inflation is for good reasons, right? I mean, there's good and bad inflation. Is it stagflation? Is it coming from, from from oil prices, which, you know, we have to use energy or we did in the past, and but it's just going to the pockets of people who won't spend it? Or is it coming from generally good economic activity, rebounding uh, higher wages, which generally is, 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 is positive? So, look, clearly there's a big political angle. Clearly there's a push even this week, the president of the United States was making his comment saying, you know, pretty much demanding higher wages in certain sectors. We've seen this week in the UK, uh, NHS getting their 3% pay rise, not enough. We've seen the questions around the triple lock and, and, and the pensions, uh, you know, will they rebound by 8% this year? So it's, it's clearly a huge area. Central banks will generally put up with higher inflation than they have in the last 25 years. Uh, personally, I think there's a ways to go before before we really need to start panicking about inflation. Awesome. Can you uh, just touch on the main macro indicators to look out for? Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess following on from that, clearly the wage data is is important. The unemployment and uh, I mean, there's been the discussions on the Phillips curve. I don't want to get too boring for your listeners, but traditionally there was this trade-off. Apparently, this New Zealand economist Phillips who came up with the Phillips curve, which this inevitable trade-off in the Keynesian economic system of, of labor, of unemployment versus inflation. So you could have one or the other or mix, but they were kind of linked. That, that's clearly broken down. We've seen record unemployment in the US, UK before the crisis and and yet not inflation, certainly not wage inflation. So um, the main indicators remain, I think, the key metrics that lead to people being happier, whether that's wage inflation, economic growth, um, and, and and these things, and certain of the inflation, uh, certain of the indicators that we've used in the past are, are less important now because um, because a a lot of the indicators tend to be somewhat backward looking, but even sort of GDP and after the shock we've had is a bit meaningless. Or we clearly were seeing 
crazy growth of GDP uh, growth rates this year. But, you know, is it meaningless because of what we went through last year? Even last year's numbers, you know, just a quick point on that. The UK apparently dropped 10%, but that's because the UK measures its GDP in, in different ways to other sec other countries. So uh, I'm afraid a lot of these numbers are, are no longer relevant, which makes sense. Economics evolves and, and, and market dynamics evolve. So much of my industry is focused on using correlations and seeing what the metrics are and, and what's led to outcomes in the past. But of course, those only those rely on, on those previous models and assumptions and causalities remaining constant. And of course, they don't. So we're, we're, I wouldn't say we're in a, a new world, but um, the, the key things to look out for are clearly um, uh, how exchange rates evolve, because that's ultimately um, how, you know, how prosperous com countries are, wage uh, wage growth and um, and and unemployment as as we bounce back out of this crisis we saw in the last fifteen months. Okay, let's move on to uh, the XT capital markets. Um, so, from which geographies and asset classes are you underweight and overweight on? So, as a house, we recently took some chips off the table. We've been a little uh, on inequities, so we're neutral on equities um, overall. We, we're underweight uh, the majority of the fixed income space. Uh, we're, we're neutral-ish on, on, on gold, at least as, as a safe haven. We're probably slightly positive on, on some commodities and, and we're quite positive on alternatives. So um, the main question of the last 10, uh, last at least three, last couple of years is, you know, you want some equities, but then how much, um, you know, how much fixed income do you want? And, and in the last 12 to 15 months with yields getting where they got to in March and April, last year, it's, it's really hard to see value in fixed income across the board going forward. Um, and, and of course, if we do get a reflationary environment um, and, and we see incredible profit growth, we've seen, if, if once again, we ever needed the lesson we learned last year in the last 15 months that companies, particularly US companies, continue to find ways to make enormous amounts of money despite the economic conditions. And so, so in all that, you know, if, if all of those things are true and, and will continue to be true for the next few years, equities is, and other real assets, whether it's real estate, are really the, the main game in town. You don't really want to be paid in fixed income. Uh, the, the, the clue is in the name. You don't really want fixed um, returns in an, in, in, a, in an environment where, where things are going higher. You you want to partake in that party. So so equities really is... is but. We have been a little bit shocked by by how positive equities have got. We 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 think they've gotten a little bit too bullish. Probably all the all the positive news is is in there. But you know, uh, I'll be the first one to remind your listeners that the amount of money that's not been made as people wait for a correction is is much greater than the money that's lost when the correction eventually comes. So generally, for especially your younger listeners, you want to be involved in equities. You want to be involved in companies that are growing. You want to be involved in companies that are that are transforming their industry. So, is the sixty forty asset allocation dead, and and how would you advise to change that now? Yeah, sixty forty. I think it is dead. I think I think a lot of the old assumptions have been, are, are increasingly being challenged in terms of equity bond splits. Traditionally, you started with lots of equities when you were young. You you had few bonds because you could take the volatility and the long term growth. And as you got nearer to retirement, mechanically you would switch to bonds and and less equity. In fact, I mean, that's been completely turned on its head. And, you know, 30, 40 year olds, people like myself for uh, just still 40s. Um, you know, this is often our most, you know, income or capital intensive periods of our life. So probably at this stage, we, you know, we need income 
traditionally provide by fixed income, but not anymore. And, and yet, when you often people get to 60s and 70s, well, apart from having to hand over money to their children, they've paid off their house, etc. So they could probably run with higher equity. So a lot of the traditional models of equities versus bonds are completely being rewritten. That, of course, allied to the fact that, you know, traditionally three to four percent returns on your portfolio when you retired were good enough to see you to retirement without touching your capital base, whatever. That That's no longer possible with bonds. So. Yeah, I think 60-40. I mean, I'm, I've never really been an expert on 60-40. Um, I think there'll be years where 60-40s work well, uh, to be honest. Um, again, with yields where they are um, and equities have the potential and, and profit margins, et cetera, to do what they're doing. You know, you can. You, we, we have discussions with people about having 80, 90, 100% equity portfolios, which, you know, you can almost argue have certain lower risk metrics than, than a high bond portfolio. Sure. How bubble-like are these conditions in the XC markets? Yeah. So, um, uh, so I, I joined as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. You referred to earlier um, in '99, and I had the pleasure of working in luxury goods um, for about a year before I joined the tech team. So my timing was perfect, just as the tech crash came. Um, that that was a proper bubble, both markets and and tech, and and in terms of what the com- people were paying for companies, or shall we just say ideas, you know, it's nothing like that today. I mean, yes, you have, you know, you'll have. Uh, it's completely different now because the the com- these companies are making incredible amounts of money, are incredibly profitable, et cetera, et cetera. So back in two thousand, that was a real bubble. You had big market caps on companies that had no, you know, didn't even have sales. Today you have large market caps and high-ish valuations on companies that just make money for fun. So it's, it's, it's a different model. Uh, I mean, we don't need multiple expansion to generate prop, you know, decent equity returns. Traditionally in the US, maybe six to seven in Europe, a little bit lower percent. Well, if earnings are growing 10 to 15% a year, which they can easily do, despite the, the, the ridiculous rebound we're seeing in earnings this year, well, even with multiple staying the same or even going down, you're going to make high single-digit returns. So um, if, you want a bo- if you want a real bubble market, you need to look at fixed income, where, again, to, today, there's still sort of 30 to 40% of the fixed income market, certainly on the sovereign markets, that trades at negative rates. So um, they haven't got high PEs. They've got infinite PEs. So... Yeah, I think um, we, markets are not cheap, but that doesn't mean they are going south um, soon. Sure. What would you say the intrinsic value for the S&P 500 is? Um, the price is what you pay, value is what you get, according to Warren Buffett. Um, th- there, is, there is no, I mean, there is no such thing as intrinsic value. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, look, JP Morgan this week, I think they raised their forecast to 4,800 by the end of the year. Um, we we don't publish an official forecast. I mean, we're, what, 43, 4,400. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a 20 times multiple on, on probably next year's earnings is, 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 is certainly fine. Uh, again, companies, profit margins continue to go higher. I, I've seen various cycles. 2007 was the last peak. We are dramatically above the last peak in terms of earnings, uh, in terms of margins. People keep saying, no, I can't go higher, I can't go higher. Companies continue to find ways to do more, to, 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 to make more profits, dollars or euros or pounds, whatever, with, with the assets they have. And I'm certainly in the camp, and we could spend the next three hours discussing about whether we're going to finally start to see the, 
technological revolution, the, the productivity numbers come through. We're, we're at this crucial point in time where we've had all these excitement about new technologies being cloud, AI, digitization, et cetera, but we've not yet seen it come through in the numbers. It's a bit like in the mid 90s before the internet really got going. People would, Gordon, the economist, said, you know, productivity is everywhere except in the numbers. Well, then it finally came through. I personally think that now for the next 10 or 15 years, the software and the investment that, that every industry is making will start to show huge productivity gains across the board, which will lead to higher wages, uh, higher margins. In that environment, um, you need to be long equities. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the, we could have a, a years of, of where the S&P and other industries do very well. So it's wow. probably higher than where it is today. That's interesting. Um, having said that, are you, are you building a standby fund to deploy after a crash, if and when that happens? And um, we'll process uh, selling these assets. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great question. We traditionally were a Swiss private bank in the name. We, we, uh, we, we generally tend to underperform, in, in, despite my bullish rhetoric, we tend to underperform in rising markets like this year because we, we tend to be a bit more prudent. We tend to have a bit more gold, certainly than our international competitors. We, we tend to be a little bit more underinvested. So we, this helped us a lot during the, during the Q1 2020 correction. We, we had very limited drawdowns, which helped us to, to limit the downside and then rebound. So that was very helpful. Um, we, we're not. We're, we're certainly not. Despite being neutral on equities and underweight bonds, we're not. Um, we're not building up a, a kind of, you know, a, a safe harbor kind of fund or anything like that. We we will probably look to re-engage with equity markets later this year, hopefully. And then, um, but yeah, we don't. We certainly in our base case, we don't see a, a massive market correction for the next two to three years. Wow. Okay. And, and having said that, do you, how do you approach value, quality and growth allocation for, you know, short, medium and long term? Yeah, great question. Obviously, very topical. 2020, 2021 was, gosh, if you ever needed um, validation about <laughs> sector rotation and, and style focus, it, it was, you had it in spades in the last 15 months. Uh, we are we are we are a private bank. People invest us, uh, choose come to us to invest for the long term. We we try. We, to be honest, we're, we're not good at getting the timing right. Um, so we try to avoid that. How do I? Clearly, there was a there was a, re, a reflation trade that started last uh, September October, and it's it's been incredibly uh, violent and, and and successful for certain people. It's kind of run out of steam in the last two to three months and, and growth has begun to reassert itself. How we try to play it is rather than try to time it, we try to choose leaders in most fields. So hopefully at least some of our stocks are going well at any one time. Um, we try not to, to go all in. We do have different offerings. Um, I run a an offering called Quality Income, which obviously is not allowed it has a certain amount of dividend minimum dividend and hence it's sort of structurally anti-tech and hence i had to try to catch up with what was going on last year so i had to put more cyclical stocks in well that that those portfolios have done extraordinarily well for the last 12 months whereas some of our more conviction long-term growth have, have suffered this year although they're rebounding so i think that what we try to provide in most people's portfolios is a mix a balance we try to probably avoid a couple of sectors be it sort of fossil fuels or, or maybe some some financials in certain areas 
but generally we try to have leaders in most sectors um the one the companies even if it's railroads we try which is undergoing massive technological change and, and other areas there's always something going on in most sectors so that's how we try to mitigate the fact that we're not very good at switching styles uh, midstream okay so let's move on to the uh, debt capital markets how long does this goldilocks period stay for and, and how long and uh, low can rates go yeah, well, um, central banks have made one thing clear over the last sort of two to three years. They're prepared to do anything to stop corporate bankruptcies and, and, and of course, to help governments to borrow, which, which is, has been the case for longer than certain people think that this is new territory. I mean, qu quantitative easing has been going on for hundreds of years at times. Um, inevitably, sometimes in the past, it led to hyperinflation and, and, and currency devaluation. But, but the fact that central banks or, or people have been helping governments to finance their deficits is, is not new. Um, how long does it go on for? I think it goes on for um, a, a long time and then it'll end abruptly. Um, and, um, but we've seen it in Japan. Japan have been doing it since the mid 90s in fits and starts, obviously very much more aggressively now. Uh, they've shown us, they've blown away all metrics, all sort of red lines that economists and macroeconomists thought weren't possible so this this can go on for a lot longer than than people think um and and you know just last year we saw the fed embark on on unheard of policy uh, reactions um and, and the ecb has managed to to outvote all the hawkish members and and, and do some pretty aggressive moves or continue their aggressive moves so it's it's very clear that the world has a lot of debt and um, cannot withstand um, occasional or, or even constant um, central bank support uh, on, on yields. So it's it's really hard to see it ending anytime soon. I mean, of course, if there was a if there was a euro stress and uh, the risk of a euro breakup, then of course there would be there would be big issues in terms of what could the central bank could do in Europe. But in the states. Um, I would imagine that the, the Fed will announce fairly soon, might be one of your questions, but the Fed will probably announce fairly soon some tapering of its asset purchase programs, um, which, to be fair, have not really been needed. But we're in a global market now. And, and to be honest, the, the recent Treasury move has shown probably once again that if U.S. rates get too high, um, international capital flows will bring them back down. You know, when the Bund is, is yielding 30, 40 bips and, and the Treasury gets up to 170, there's a lot of money that piles into Treasuries to get that extra yield. So, and, and obviously the Jap Japanese have been, you know, significant movers of markets for, for 30 years. So uh, it will go on, it will continue to go on until one day it'll end and it probably won't be very pretty. Okay, well, let's move on to the uh, taper, tapering topic. Can you explain what this recent yield curve flattening means, why it's occurred, um, and and can you give us your opinion on if the Fed should taper? Yeah. So, so we touched on uh, we touched on one of the key dynamics and 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 conundra, I guess, of of the markets this year, which is inflation, and and um, and it's still there clearly. But the, the more recent one is with the Delta variant and 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 more cases this summer. Clearly, there's now. Uh, there's been some repricing of, of growth expectations, which, as we said earlier, probably markets had, had pretty much had, had as good news priced in as possible. Clearly, there's been some tapering of growth expectations, uh, and we've seen that in, in the, for example, the U.S. yield curve, which is flattened, which basically means the long end goes down. Um, 
which means that the long-term growth is, is less positive than expected. And, and if anything, perhaps the short end goes up, um, although it's anchored, of course, by the Fed funds rate, but um, which, which maybe can incorporate a little bit of inflation in the short term. So you've had perhaps a little bit more inflation in the short term, one to two years, which means uh, short-term rates slightly higher. And then, of course, with the lowering of the growth expectations, maybe longer term, that's what brings the 10 and 30 years down. So um, it's, 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 it's been nothing uh, dramatic. The Fed is very happy. The Fed loves it when the, uh, the market does its work for it. Um, I think the Fed has gotten a lot of grief this year on, on its policy, but I think so far they'll be quite pleased with, with where rates are, you know, from the short to the long end. Um, I think that's, that's what this is. That's what the flattening is, is, is a repricing of some of that long-term growth. And, um, and, and we're not really seeing long-term inflation expectations um, move higher. So, so, yeah, again, as you say, a bit of a Goldilocks for the, for the Fed and certainly for corporate borrowers. I saw overnight the U.S. mortgage rates are coming down, back down again. Um, all these things are, are music to the Fed's ears. So um, in terms of tapering, um, yeah, so obviously since, since the pandemic, they don't, we'd almost finally come out of the last phases of asset purchases from the last crisis and we, we all kicked off again last March. The Fed has bought us... Uh, an unbelievable amount of treasuries, uh, as has the ECB and the Bank of J Japan and the Bank of England, but um, a phenomenal amount. And, and clearly the US economy doesn't need that, shouldn't need that support at this stage. So how do we, how does the Fed normalize policy? We've seen um, the forecast for interest rates, where they're going to be in the next two to three years, the famous dot plot that the Fed uses. Uh, those have been moving slightly higher, but probably before then you, you will probably get towards the end of the summer at the Jackson Hole Symposium in Wyoming, we'll probably get a little bit of, um, of, of discussion on, on when they start tapering, um, which will probably be, could, could well be at the September Fed meeting. Sure. Well, let's move on to the Jackson Hole. Um, how important is, are, are these FOMC uh, meeting or the next meeting? Um, yeah. Do you think they'll do anything and, and be the next catalytic event? Or are you more worried about another black swan such as COVID-19? So ironically, the, the, the Jackson Hole, despite it being a symposium, which is where a lot of uh, luminaries in their field get together, the ECB has tried to launch a, a rival one in, in, in Portugal, but hasn't yet taken off um, like Jackson Hole. But Jackson Hole has, um, so, so the next Fed meeting is in July, uh, next week. Um, we don't expect much. Um, Jackson Hole has kind of taken on a role of, of, of new or, or policy discussion, which is, which is key. Some, some years Jackson Hole takes place, no one even notices. And other years, for example, last year, where the Fed officially decided kind of unilaterally, it's not really in their remit, it should, should come from Congress. But the Fed decided last year that they were going to move away from the inflation target 2% towards an average inflation. That, that was a huge move. And that was basically announced at Jackson Hole. So Jackson Hole has the potential to, to announce big policy shifts. And I wouldn't be surprised, as mentioned, if, if, this, if this next OFMC meeting in July is a bit of a damn squib and, and they, they allow themselves to go into more detail at Jackson Hole. FOMC meetings happen over two days. They publish the, the minutes about six weeks later. They published a statement, which is definitely in central bank speak and, and, and um, doesn't provide too much detail. Well, Jackson Hole gives them a chance to really have a speech and go into a real change in philosophy. Or So um, so I think that's that's probably what will happen this year. Next week, a bit of a damn squib, not much news. Jackson Hole probably announced, no surprise, guys, we're going to start tapering. September meeting, probably announced tapering to start between there and the end of the year. So um, 
No, I, I think markets will probably be, live with that um, unless, of course, um, you know, the, the health situation deteriorates or, or gets out of hand. There's a lot of, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who think the Fed is behind the curve. There's, in terms of politics, you can't get away from it. Um, Powell's, uh, you know, Powell is on a four-year um, term, um, but he's out of sync with president with the presidential cycle. So next February, Biden, President Biden will have a chance to confirm or 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 not Biden uh, Powell. We'll see if he does. Um, th there's also some vacant Fed seats at the moment, so you expect probably some more dovish, i.e., people who are more willing to run with growth and less focus on inflation, to be appointed during the course of this year. So the so the Democrats do have a chance to to slightly reorientate the uh, the the Fed towards perhaps a, a more uh, friendly, a more growth driven policy. Bear in mind, next year we have U.S. congressional elections. It's on a knife edge, and if the Republicans are able to retake at least the House, if not both chambers, then clearly Biden's plan will be uh, he'll, he he won't be able to do much after that. And and if he does, he'll be relying on on, on dovish monetary policy to help him make sure the economy is humming by the time of the uh, next presidential election in 2024. Sure. So going on from dovish uh, policy, do you think central banks and governments have no choice but to QE and, and reignite fiscal policy once or once or if a crash happens? So um, that's a great question. I think the main criticism of, 2000, of the 2008 great financial crisis um, was was the lack of, there wasn't no fiscal response, but it clearly was underwhelming or it took a lot of lessons were learned, at least by people who are in the center or left. And, and, and clearly the, the fiscal response was what was extraordinary last year. I mean, clearly the monetary response was important, but the fiscal response and the speed was just uh, was, was, was un, unheard of. Um, yeah, I mean, diminishing marginal returns, capital markets work that way. You know, when you when you bring out the bazooka, people get scared, fall, fall into line. Uh, the bazooka, you know, two years later is, is a bit rusty and, and people are a bit less scared. And, and two cycles later, they, they don't even notice. So the, the problem is, uh, while the Fed always maintains they have a lot more ammunition, they, they did shoot a lot of bullets last year. And, and that tandem of fiscal and monetary, not only in the US, in, in the UK, clearly also to a limited extent in Europe takes longer. But that, that tandem is saved. We, you know, we, we took out a lot of left tail outcomes, as we say in, in finance, a lot of the worst case outcomes that people were expecting spring last year were removed from the equation by, by paying people to stay at home, by, by support, etc. So all that support has clearly avoided the worst case scenarios. Um, the, the case is now at the next crisis, do you, do you bail out individuals, do you bail out companies? You, you have to be careful because of course, dynamic economies need a lot, a lot of creative destruction. We've seen a lot of creative destruction in the US and UK. We've got record numbers of, of new companies being created. So there's a lot of good news going on in the economies, despite that there's still a lot of people suffering. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's always that balance between, you know, the, one of the basically the first editor of the Economist, Mr. Badgehart, who who you know who basically the difference between solvency crisis and liquidity crisis, right? You want to bail out people who are li uh, who are having liquidity issues, but you don't want to bail out insolvent companies because they need to go under to allow new ones to flourish. Sure. Can you tell us why gold has performed badly as an asset class since the beginning of COVID? It's a great. It's a very good question. Um, in terms of gold, um, so gold is. Yeah, it's a long discussion. Gold, gold's 
cryptos has its three values and, and is, is clearly superior, for example, to cryptocurrencies in terms of store of value. And, and um, gold's been stuck a bit in the middle, right? Because we, 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 took, we took out the depression area um, outcomes, as, as, as I mentioned just now, uh, which when gold should have flourished. We, we, we have some inflation. Certainly, if we enter in hyper, you know, a dramatic inflation environment, gold will do well. We, to date, we've avoided that. Um, so we've kind of avoided the two the two extremes when gold will have done well. Um, it doesn't pay income. Um, it doesn't participate in sort of economic activity rebound. Um, unless you think there's a that there was a moment when I think gold was was being sought after in the first half of last year because people thought whether you know there could be genuine concerns in financial or or, or economic breakdown. But since since about the summer of last year, when I think people started to feel, okay, in 12 months, we'll, we'll have had solutions to this health crisis, um, either preventative or curative, then, 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 then I think gold is just sort of stuck in the middle. It's not really, you know, no, no one's really needed to call upon uh, gold in, in, those, in those scenarios. And I would argue that's probably going to continue. Um, so we, I've been a little bit bearish on gold since last summer, tried to play some other commodities, um, some, some others in the precious metals complex, whether it's silver, palladium, or platinum, or of course industrial metals, which which have seen huge rises in our in our correcting as the supply comes on stream and, and demand moderates. So, yeah, gold. I, I'm not a massive gold bull at the moment, um, contrary to some of my colleagues who, who continue to to think it has its place in the portfolio.